This is Famous Lost Words. I'm your host, Christopher Ward, along with Mr. Tom Jokic. Hey, Christopher. So, if you're just joining us for the very first time, A, what's your problem? And B, let me tell you that this show (laughs) is about mining our extensive interview archives and finding the best moments from all of those interviews. Now, a few months ago, we played an interview, I think it was from 1985, with Brian Adams, and it was great. We have found an even better interview with Brian from 1981. So all these months later, we want to return to that. So we're going to do that in just a few minutes. We also have a lot of other stuff coming up on today's show. On last week's Awesome 80s edition, we wanted to play this Joe Jackson interview, but we just did not have the time. I would have had to edit it down too much, but it's really too entertaining, too funny, and too amazing for us to shorten it up. So this week, we've got a Joe Jackson interview, a few interviews from the late 70s, early 80s, and they're excellent, funny, very entertaining, and they include J.D. Roberts and Jeannie Becker. So that's fun. Also, Christopher, you've had a couple of great Led Zeppelin stories over the first two seasons. We've got almost a better one coming up in just a few minutes with legendary broadcaster Roger Ashby. He's got the best stories. He's going to tell a bunch of them today, but the best one you need to listen for is his story about going to London to meet Led Zeppelin in person. Great stuff. All that coming up on this edition of Famous Lost Words. Now, Brian Adams. There you go, Lonely Nights from 1981. Take it away, Christopher. Tom, thank you very much for all the deep-diving archive work that you do that produces gems like this. This is a wonderful interview with Adams. Brian Adams is a guy who, in his T-shirt and jeans with his rough-and-tumble vocal sound and a collection of songs that are out to charm you with their boyish exuberance, he wins over fans one audience at a time. And he did all of this before the big records, which, of course, inevitably came along. Mm -hmm. In this interview from 1981, Adams is cocky but eager to please and utterly dedicated to his work. His second solo album, You Want It, You Got It, had come out and featured some early, let's call them modest hits, Lonely Nights and Fits You Good. The best was yet to come, but Brian had all the parts in place. He had an extremely talented co-writer in Jim Valance. He had a strong manager in Bruce Allen, and he had a band that loved what they were doing. Adams talked about something that became one of his least favorite things to address. The dance hit, Let Me Take You Dancing. I did a dance record in 1979 for A&M Records, which was my first record. It did really, I don't think anybody really expected it to do very well, you know, because it was a, it was a 12-inch record and, and I was a new artist. I'd just been signed as a writer to A&M Records. So when it came out, no one really knew what to think. You know, it was R&B. Who knows what's going to happen with this guy? So it comes out. It does really well. Uh, they asked me to do an album. So I did my first album, which was a moderate success in Canada and, and uh, did, did quite well in France also, a little bit in Europe. Oh, man. I remember that song. That was not a good start for Brian. Probably a song that he would just as soon forget. But I do remember hearing it on the radio and actually kind of liking it at the time because I, you know, I was pretty young. You know what? I wasn't young enough to excuse liking that song. But anyway, that was a big <laughs> hit. <laughs> let me take you dancing. I don't even remember the song. Oh, let me take it. you dancing. Oh, yeah. And they sped it up. Like, they sped up his voice. He sounded kind of chipmunky. Like, we know what oh. Brian Adams sounds like, but that song was like, oh, oh, poor guy. Oh, well, those some... were the days of Vera Speed, right? Yes. Yeah, for sure. 
One of the things he talked about, which I really like, is the camaraderie of the roster at Bruce Allen Management. Loverboy and Prism and myself are all managed by a guy called Bruce Allen. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a very family sort of thing over there. You know, we're all we sort of know each other. And uh, Henry Small just joined Prism. And I liked Henry a lot, and he's really the only reason I, I got involved with the band as as such because I thought that he had a really good voice. And and I'd written for Prism in the past. I wrote songs on their Armageddon album, and I wrote a song called Cover Girl for them on their Greatest Hits album. Mm-hmm. And uh, what else? Well, I guess the Loverboy thing was Paul Dean meeting him at a, at a concert one night. He said, look, you know, I got this song, and why don't we finish it up? So we we finished it up, and we ended up pitching this tune, and then I presented another song to him because I had, you know work with him a little bit and he said oh wow so what are you gonna do with that song i said i don't know he says can i have it i said <laughs> oh sure i said sure i just love the thought of those guys just so willing to work together and share songs that's amazing mm-hmm. and it helped adam's career as a songwriter too, mm-hmm. to share mm-hmm. those songs mm-hmm. the recording of lonely nights took its toll the hit is lonely nights and i understand that uh, on the title track here uh your fingers were bleeding when it was finished it, it sounds like it doesn't it Come it was on. one of those songs it was one take and it was just pretty wild and at the end of the song, there's a huge cough that happens, and it was just—it was just a laugh. Yeah, a couple of coughs. It was go a right laugh. into last chance. Yeah, Mickey was laughing his head off, and I, the drummer, and uh, you know, Mike—it was hurting to play the song because it was so—it was so wild. Yeah, you know, I, my fingers were bleeding, but it was just—it was just a, you know, the, the only way I could really describe what it was like to do that <laughs> thing and you know, to cut that song really. Working with hometown talent has its advantages. This album took yeah. 17 days to record, and that's it. That's it. <laughs> Yeah, record, record. We're talking recording and mixing. I was prepared for this. Really, I really yeah. was. I was, you know, I was ready to go in and just do it. And the band, I, I, I was really lucky because they really liked the songs a lot. So that helped a lot. It wasn't, it wasn't like just give me the check and run. It was like they liked the songs. I'm not in a position where I can afford to pay people, you know, twelve hundred dollars a week to to come out and play drums. Yeah. Mickey, the drummer, for example, had had done barely any studio work until he did my record, and then mm-hmm. Hall and Oates grabbed him after he did my record, and now he's touring with Hall and Oates. You know, he's got a young energy, he's got a good feel. And Tommy plays with Ian Hunter, Ian Hunter's doing his thing. Brian oh, Stanley, yeah. I don't even know what he's doing. But I'm not going to get a bunch of guys from New York when I can get young guys from Vancouver that are going to give me the same thing. Well, I love how enthusiastic he is in this interview. You know, I've met that Brian Adams, and I think it was around that time, but I've also met a much different Brian Adams and who was not as much fun. But this is great. He's in such great spirits here, and you said at the very beginning that he's cocky, but he's also really likable. Like, it's just this, he's kind of like bursting with this confident energy, and I really do like him in this. Now, you would think that the rough edges of his voice would let him down sometimes, but that is not so. I've been really lucky. I've... I mean, this is my eighth month on the road, and uh, I told my manager, I said, look, Bruce, if, if I've got a voice after three months, you've got yourself a singer. <laughs> and I've, here I am, still blasting away every night. <laughs> Great line. If I've got a voice after three months, you've got yourself a singer. <laughs> I know. I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, he talks about the process that led to the album cover of You Want It, You Got It. Well, the thing with this cover was they, they had a definite idea what they wanted me to do, so they made me go through all these things. It was like a real Hollywood glamour thing, and I, eventually I got sick. I said, look, why don't you put a record on, and I'll, and I'll just dance to it, and then you just take a picture of me, okay? And those are the pictures that turned out the best. I wanted this record cover to have a lot of action to it, and I wanted it to, to say, you know, in one way or another, what the music was all about. And this cover to me says, it says rock and roll, and it, it makes no mistake about it in the title. So let's get on with it, you know? Enough of this makeup and, and heavy eyeshadow. Let's, let's just make a record, you know? Hold the glamour, folks. <laughs> <laughs> He's one of those singers that 
you know, he's small but mighty. He's mm. got a big voice in the studio. And he found one singer that he could not overwhelm. That would be Lou Graham of Foreigner. I, I've got a pretty powerful attack when it comes to singing. So when I... Um, when I sang with him in the studio, it was it was like both of us were as strong. And normally, when I sung with other other vocalists, I have to stand way off the microphone because I'm too my voice stands out too much. Just overpower everybody just, else. I overpower them. And so when I've when I sang with Lou, it wasn't that situation at all. We both had to stand back off the microphone because we were. It was so. It was. He is a fantastic singer. That's so funny. You can see both of those guys having to back up to the back of the studio and just let rip with their vocals. Man, I like both of their vocals. I really do admire Lou Graham, who recently announced that he was stopping solo performances. Now, a lot of people think that Lou has quit the music business. He hasn't. He's still touring around um, with kind of like a greatest hits pack of uh, other artists. Um, But uh, boy, what a great artist and singer Lou Graham is. And of course, you can't argue with Brian Adams' success. Speaking of Brian Adams' success, here we are almost 40 years on from that interview and he and his still songwriting partner, Jim Valance, created the music for the uh, Pretty Woman show on Broadway. Really? Mm-hmm. I had no idea. That's really interesting. And um, so what would they have done? So added, so they would have used many of the songs from the original film and then added some brand new ones? I think they wrote all original songs for it. Well, that's really cool. Okay. Christopher, do you have any Brian Adams stories? Well, the first time I met Brian was was really nice. Um, we were in New York mixing the first Alana Miles album at the Atlantic Studios, and uh, Joe Cocker was recording down the hall, which was exciting to me. Yeah. And who should show up there one day but Brian Adams? And I'm like, hey, what's going on? He's like, well, I'm cutting with Joe down the hall. We're doing a song together. I went, oh, that's fantastic. And I think it was Brian that got us invited down to... Um, to drop in on the session and I'm you know I was kind of nervous and so it's a fairly small room and you know Joe was totally cool and offered to let us hear one of the songs from the record so they bunched us all in and I was standing literally right next to Joe Cocker's chair <laughs> and they played they played the song back really loud except it didn't have a vocal on it so Joe sang the vocal live in the room. Oh my god. So I'm standing I'm standing like literally two feet from Joe Cocker as he sang and it was that old Elvis song, uh, One Night With You. Wow. One night with you. Oh. And it was of course he just tore it up and I was just mind blown by the whole experience. You know, that's just one of those moments where you nobody else gets a chance to have that moment. It's so special. Like, it's amazing. I've told you this story about when Colby Calais came into the studio and sang uh, on the morning show, she sang the song Bubbly for the first time. The song had just broken out. And I swear, she sang it to me and did not break eye contact with me. (laughs) Now, there are other people in the studio who swear that she was looking at them. It's just one of those moments that no one else gets to share. Like, it's just your moment, right? That's beautiful. That's amazing. I love that. (laughs) Well, I got to say, Joe was not singing the song to me. He was facing (laughs) forward, looking at the speakers, as was I, and he was clutching a Corona. Excellent. That's great. (laughs) And there you go. Christopher Ward with another one of his great stories on Famous Lost Words. (laughs) 
one of my favorite songs from the 80s, Stepping Out by Joe Jackson from the album Night and Day. Joe Jackson is such an interesting performer, truly one of my favorites. Um, I really love the Look Sharp album. Some of his references on this upcoming uh, interview segment um, go back to his first album, but also just to his whole career. This is great stuff. Go ahead, Christopher, about Joe Jackson. British songwriter Joe Jackson grew up in Portsmouth, England, as a scrawny, book-loving kid who studied music to avoid the world of student athletics. <laughs> he loved composition, and at 18, he won a scholarship to study composition, piano, and percussion at London's Royal Academy of Music. Soon, though, he was seduced by the devil pop music and the <laughs> punk scene of the moment. In 1978, he was signed to A&M Records and he released Look Sharp, which contained the hit single, Is She Really Going Out With Him? Look over there, okay. where there, there comes Jeannie with her new boyfriend. Okay, keep going. I don't know how you remember all of these things. <laughs> you gotta look sharp, you gotta look sharp, sharp. I love that album. Wow. Look Sharp is a classic and it still holds up today. Is it the one that has Sunday Papers on yes. it? Yes. Great song. I love that song. I used to play that song in a band I played in. Was that Ming T? No, baby. It was someone else. Another band. Um, so anyway, Look Sharp was followed soon after by album number two, I'm the Man. And this is where we meet Joe. By the way, named after Joe Piano, the cool Snoopy character. Wow. <laughs> this interview was with the dynamic duo of J.D. Roberts and Jeannie Becker of the new music fame, bravely dealing with a rather testy Joe Jackson. So I want to know, Tom, is it a pose mere image building, or just someone who's tired of the same questions and not willing to hide his irritation. Mm. <laughs> Let's start with a question about his history, the classical training, and his time in cabaret. How did you make the move over from uh, the classical music thing that you had your early training as a classical pianist? Well, it's quite simple, really. Uh, I wasn't interested in that, so I did something else. But what about the cabaret thing that you got into for a while? I did that to earn money. Everyone's got to earn money. And... Uh, I haven't always been able to earn money playing the sort of music I wanted to play. But, I mean, I prefer to play music and earn money rather than work in a factory or something. Oh, dear. You know, I know that (laughs) Joe Jackson would never call himself a punk rocker, but that guy is a punk in interviews, especially in these early clips. He is contrary, and he just kind of spits out his answers. You can just hear it. It's not its not like overt, but it's but it's enough to probably throw uh, JD and Jeannie off, not off the mark, because they're such professionals. But, you know, it, it pulls you back a little bit when you're interviewing someone like that. I interviewed Joe, and he was great. Yeah. But maybe I got him on a good day. On a good day, yeah. <laughs> Um, he's asked in this interview if I'm the man is more commercial. Oops, someone said a bad word. I'm the man, your latest album, seems to have a little bit more commercial structure and feel to it than uh, Look Sharp did. Is that a, an artistic progression on your part? I don't know. I think the album's better than the first one in various different ways. I mean, like, it's a year later, so if it isn't better, then we might as well give up, you know. Mm-hmm. Whether it's more commercial or not it depends on how many people buy it, as far as I'm concerned, because... If people buy it in the millions, then it must be commercial, I suppose. But I don't think of it in that way. So, in this next segment, there's an affectionate reference made to, quote, this little jerk with glasses, unquote. Who could this be? How do you feel about the fact that initially so many people compared you with Elvis Costello? Who? Elvis Costello. Sorry, I've never heard of him. Didn't you uh, ever record uh, at the same studio as him and run into him in the hall or something? Uh, well, I ran into this little jerk with glasses and it may well have been, I don't know, 
I don't know. You know, he, he didn't speak. <laughs> okay, that is hilarious, boy. Yeah. He clearly did yeah. not like Elvis Costello. And it's funny. I've got Elvis Costello's book, and I went to the back of the book just yesterday to look through to see if there's any references to uh, Joe Jackson. And there's no stupid index at the back of the book to cross-reference. I couldn't find anything because I wanted to see if there if there was any mutual dislike from Elvis towards Joe, but I couldn't find it. Hmm. Can't help you on that one. Mm-hmm. He had uh, quite an upbringing, you know, Tom. He dealt with illness as a child that kept him indoors a lot. And, and I guess possibly that was the origin of his bookishness. You were asthmatic as a kid. Yeah. And you probably, probably still got it. I mean, do you think that oh, yeah. uh, made you want to sort of do something vital? like? Oh, yeah, I think so, yeah. I think that must have been a part of it. Yeah, because, I mean... Uh, if you're uh, basically a sick kid and you don't run around football fields, then you've got to do something, you know. What about the energy that you put out on stage? Does it ever bother you? I mean, if it's really hot, which it usually is. I mean, it's just, uh, you don't think about it. When I'm on stage, I don't think, uh, well, I better stand still now in case I get out of breath or something. Okay, now have you noticed he's actually warming up to Jeannie and JD right about now? And it's all because they're talking mm-hmm. about his asthma, and that's really interesting. He seems genuinely surprised by success. Were you surprised that uh, your stuff has gotten as big yeah, as it's Yeah, I am surprised, yeah. I mean, you don't expect to go gold on your first album, which is what's happened. I mean, I find that amazing. I never expected that. But, I mean, at the same time, we didn't just put out the album and think, well, I don't care whether people buy it or not, you know. Probably won't do anything, you know. He talks about the personal experience that leads to songs, and uh, the interviewers ask him about the song, is she really going out with him? It's about, it's about pretty women walking with gorillas down my street. You know? That's what it's about. It's just an ironic sort of song. Is it something taken from true experience? Oh, yeah. Well, it's, but it's not just my experience, right? It's a it's common experience. I, uh, all my songs are from true experience, which are not necessarily just mine, but other people's as well. Because mm-hmm. you know? I want people to be able to relate to what I'm saying. So if I, if I felt tempted to write a song that was so intensely personal that no one would know what I was talking about, then I'd, I'd probably not do it. So now we have a second Joe Jackson interview, mm-hmm. uh, just a couple of cuts from that one. Uh, a, a somewhat more reflective Joe Jackson talks about the age-old battle that artists and their labels wage, but with some interesting insight. It seems to be like um, um, a hip thing to be constantly at war with your record company. It has been <laughs> since about 1976, uh-huh. you know. I mean, every week, you know, you look in the British music papers and it's like, The Clash have a huge row with EMI or whoever <laughs> they're with, you know, CBS. Uh, and uh, I don't know, it's stupid, you know. I mean, my job is to make the best album I can possibly make and their job is to go out and sell it. And uh, yeah. no, I don't see any reason why there shouldn't be total cooperation. The only time it breaks down is when people start trying to do each other's jobs, you know. Mm-hmm. If, if the they, record company they try to, to make take, your music, and, yeah. If, if right. the record company and the people that are basically on the business end try to take uh, too much of a, a part in the creative side of it, and also it goes wrong the other way around as well. You know, if the artist starts to become too commercially aware, you know, and too much into making money and maintaining his own security and so on, then uh, he ceases to be an artist, really. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if you want to make money, you, you should be a businessman, not a musician. You know. As far as I'm concerned, anyway. He goes on to talk about his then new album. This this, this segment is from 1982, uh, Night and Day, and how it was influenced by an older musical era. The new album, Night and Day, um, the comparisons have been drawn 
comparisons that you don't like, and I don't know if that's just because of you don't like comparisons, period, but the comparisons to Cole Porter and the whole... Um, well, it's nothing like Cole Porter. Tin Pan Alley and New York and well, Frank just, Sinatra. Yeah, that was just like everything. an image that we kind of yeah. used for the cover, which is very much um, a fairly glamorous image of New York, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, connecting. I like to feel that what I do is connected with uh, traditions that go back before rock and roll, you know. Back as far as Tin Pan Alley in this case. Yeah, really, or, yeah. yeah. Definitely. I actually feel I have more in common the swing era, you know, than I do to, you know, like the original rock and roll Uh explosion or the beat boom of the 60s or, you know, any of these things. I I just find I have a lot more respect personally for characters like Duke Ellington than I do for Sid Vicious. Yeah. I mean... And, you know, he really did bring upon, like, I think in the uh, in that interview clip, they kind of compare him to Cole Porter. And it was only the album, uh, the album art that he sang was maybe a reference to that. But there was something so classy about that Night and Day album. Another album that stands up really well. Mm-hmm. Because none of these albums, not look, look Sharp and Night and Day, none of them really sound like they're from a period. Like, there's a little bit of punk, maybe even new wave-ish. Uh, attitude in um, in Look Sharp, um, and there's Drum Machine in Night and Day. But boy, there's such great pop songs, and the rock songs rock, and the pop songs shine. And I just love the sound of both of those eras from Joe Jackson. Well, he continued for years to expand his um, sort of musical reach. He actually signed with Sony Classical in 1997, and in 2001, he won a Grammy for Best Pop Instrumental Album. Um, There's a 40th anniversary tour coming in 2019, including one Canadian stop in Toronto with the Danforth Music Hall on February the 18th. Oh, that's coming up. I have to say, I don't know if this is something I found in my research, and I did not know this, or if I did, I forgot, and those two things are starting to meld, (laughs) which is unfortunate. And that is that he was part of, I don't know call it pro-smoking, but he didn't like the anti-smoking sort of movement and and how that affected public places and what you could do and not do it. He was very vocal about that. Wow. And I have have a photograph from the time that I interviewed him at Much, and I looked at it, and I just noticed that he's got a cigarette in his hand and there's an ashtray on the floor right beside his foot. I'm going to post that picture on, on on our site, so... That's great stuff. Joe Jackson, you know, I also remember when he opened, I think, for The Who um, at a big concert in Toronto, and someone in the audience did not appreciate the fact that he was there, and they whipped an entire fully dressed hot dog and hit him right in the shirt, <laughs> right? Ooh. It was ugly. I be- If my memory serves me correct... That did happen, and it was not a good moment in Joe Jackson's career, and he didn't react well, which I wouldn't imagine anyone would. But, uh, yeah, that did happen. There you go. Joe Jackson on Famous Lost Words. So, we've got someone here who has a great Led Zeppelin story, so let's introduce him right now. It also leads to another story. His name is Roger Ashby, famed broadcaster, a good friend of mine, and man, this guy's been in the business so long, he had to actually crank up his radio to get it started when he first started in the business. (laughs) I still have that one, too. (laughs) Roger! Hello! Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be on the radio again. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so Roger, paint the picture. What year are we talking about? It was the year that the movie 
movie, the song remains the same, came out. There was Led Zeppelin movie, an album of the same name. Okay. In 1976, when the album and the movie were released, the record company at the time, uh, around the world, was sending over various radio people to view the movie with the band. And this was back in the decadent 70s when record companies had way too much money. And, and I was chosen to be the, uh, the one to go from the chum group of radio stations. So uh, I flew over and uh, settled in in a hotel room. My first time I'd ever been to England, actually. I uh, drank the mini bar dry in the room because uh, there was really yeah, nothing as one else does. to do. Yeah, well, you know. Yeah. And there was uh, the girl on the, on the reception desk in the hotel was from Pickering, as it turned out. She had moved over to England, so uh, we, we struck up a conversation, and, and the night went on. And then in the morning when I get up, uh, I'm feeling a little tired and not very energetic, and I have to be to a movie theater in the West End of London by 11 a.m. for a screening of the movie. And I really didn't know what to expect, but the, the West End theater that I went to was like the old Imperial Theater in Toronto, which at one time had enough room for 2,000 people. Oh. So here I am in this big theater in the West End of London, old-fashioned theater, and there's at least, I, I don't know if there were 2,000, but there were at least 1,000 seats in that theater, and there were seven of us. There was me, four members of the band, their manager, Peter Grant, and a fellow from the record company in, oh in England. Oh, my God. Okay? I, I, was, nice. I was stunned because on the way over, I thought, I can kind of get lost in the crowd because right. I'm not really feeling all that well. There was no crowd. <laughs> it, was, it was just us. And we all sat side by side. So I've got, I think I had Robert Plant on one side and John Paul Jones on the other. And, oh, and, and the movie starts... And I start to nod off. <laughs> and I think, oh, no. I can't fall asleep. I'm Led Zeppelin sitting here, and I'm watching their movie. I can't fall asleep. So I did manage to stay awake. I watched the movie. It was fantastic. Mm -hmm. So now it's, I don't know, 12, 31 o'clock, and the fellow from the record company says to Peter Grant, why don't we, uh, why don't we head back to your office? Uh, so that's what we did. The seven of us went back to Peter Grant's office, and we start drinking again. <laughs> And I'm still of course you did. the night before. So here we are. You know, we start drinking in the afternoon. The first one to leave was um, John Paul Jones, I believe. And then I think Jimmy Page left. And then Robert Plant left. So there's there's John Bonham, me, and Peter Grant, and a guy from the record company. <laughs> and I'm, I'm relying on the guy from the record company to drive me around to get me back to the hotel. So I couldn't leave till he left, really, theoretically. Right. So finally we leave. I go back to the hotel room. And um, he says, how would you like to go and see Fleetwood Mac tonight? They're in town. They're playing in London. I thought, well, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm only here for 48 hours. Why not? So uh, I, get, I get changed. I freshen up. And then this guy comes to pick me up. And we go to the Fleetwood Mac concert. And we go backstage, of course. And we meet the band. And Stevie Nicks looked beautiful. Oh, man. And uh, John McVie held on to my hand for support because he was having trouble standing up. And, uh, oh, man. And, and then, I don't know, I don't, this may not mean a lot to a lot of people, but the record, there was another record guy there, and he introduced himself as Dave D. And I thought to myself, I think I know who this guy is. And I said, are you... Did you used to be in a band called Dave D, Dozy, Beaky, Mick, and Titch? And he said, yes, I did. Yeah. And I said, oh, my God, I bought all of your records when I was in grade 11 and 12. 
So, so I had a great time with him. And you know, when I look back on the entire day, I was just as excited to meet him as I was anybody else. I was just going to say, I know what kind of a music geek you are, and I know that would have been huge for you. Because he's one of those, like, just little guys in the grand scheme of things, but he meant something to you in that, yeah, de- in that decade. Yeah. That's great. No, the whole day was fantastic. Oh, and, man. you know, I can't remember the conversation that I had with members of Led Zeppelin, but uh, it was just a thrill to be with them in the theater and then back in Peter mm-hmm. Grant's office. So that's that's one of the. What most did they think of the movie? Do they uh, do they cheer it on? I don't know. <laughs> you know, they were pretty quiet. They just kind of sat there. Yeah, yeah. It was wasn't a very <laughs> raucous event at all. But that's yeah. great. That's a strange one. That image of you in a thousand oh, I know. capacity theater with I know. just them and and, and you the, know to this day guy. to this day I don't understand why they did it that way because surely to God the band didn't sit there with one person at a time and watch the movie <laughs> over and over and over again. <laughs> Maybe this was an anomaly of some, well, some kind. Oh, that's great. So, Roger, you, you met over the course of 50 years so many artists. Is there anyone you can think of that really surprised you? The two that always come to mind when I'm asked that kind of question is, is Mick Jagger and Tony Bennett. Mick Jagger, because when we were in Barbados in 1986, our, our first visit when we used to take contest winners down there, he was recording at Eddie Grant's studio. Mm. Eddie Grant is a, a native Barbadian. Remember the song Electric Avenue? And he had a studio yeah. on his property. And we managed through the record company to get permission to uh, to enter onto his property and, and meet Mick. And uh, once you're behind those gates, you know, where they are, they figure you're one of them. If you've been allowed in, then you must be okay. So we had a great chat with him. He wanted to talk about cricket more than he wanted to talk about music. Uh, we chatted <laughs> for about half an hour, and then uh, he had to go back into the studio. Uh, I was with my boss at the time, and he, he said, Oh, my goodness, we didn't get a picture. I've got my camera here with me. Of course, there was no cameras on phones in those days. Uh, so we phoned into the studio and said, Could he come out for a, a photo, thinking that he would say no, but we had to ask. He came out right away. So now there's the three of us standing there, and nobody to take the picture. So we're kind of looking at each other, bewildered, and he said, don't worry, I'll find somebody. And he ran around the the estate and found a housekeeper who came back and took the photo of the three of us. (laughs) So he kind of went above and beyond, and I'll I'll never forget that about him. And he was very nice, polite, well-spoken. And Tony Bennett, I met him when he came into our studio when he had turned 80. I think he was in his 80th year. And... uh, he was so nice. He's the kind of person who I think when anybody meets him would say they feel like they've known him all his life because mm-hmm. he's just so personable ah. and so giving of his time. Uh, so he and Mick Jagger are, are my, my two favorites of all time. Oh, nice. Was there ever a moment when the wheels came off when you just felt, I'm in the middle of a live radio disaster and there's nothing I can do about it? <laughs> Well, uh, not so much a live one, but I, I interviewed uh, Johnny Rivers. Remember Johnny Rivers from the 60s? I'm laughing yeah. because I've heard all these stories, and so just saying Johnny Se- Rivers makes me laugh. And Secret uh, agent man. That's right. Memphis, all the songs. But we, we were doing interviews at the time for a documentary we were putting together, so I was looking for sound bites as opposed to long interviews. And the way I was asking the questions did not please him at all. Uh, I was jumping from song to song, and he he got so annoyed, he went into his dressing room, and he came out, and he he gave me a bio of himself and said, here, you might want to read this. And I thought, whoa, (laughs) I think I I probably know as much about your career as you do. And, uh, you know, and and he was one of those artists. When I recorded Memphis in 1965, 
And I would think to myself, no, it was 1964. <laughs> because being, being the nerdy guy that I, I am, I remember the dates. But when you're the actual person doing the thing, you don't think to yourself, well, you don't remember when you did it. It was just part of your career. Mm-hmm. You knew mm-hmm. it was early in your career. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, that, that was one of the times when I, I, I felt bad because I, I was asking the questions in such a way that he, he just wasn't happy with it. And another time when, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Gavin. Tom, Gavin. Gavin Rossdale. <laughs> I already know the stories, yeah. Christopher. Yeah. <laughs> Gavin Rossdale. From, from Bush? Yeah. Yeah. He, he came into the studio. Uh, I didn't particularly get a good vibe from him right from the beginning. <laughs> and uh, I referred to him on the air yeah. as Mr. Gwen Stefani. <laughs> Nice. It had been going really well, Christopher, yeah. until that moment. It really was. He was animated. He was funny. And and Roger wanted just simply to make a reference yeah. to the fact, to acknowledge yeah. to him and our audience that he knew that, that Gavin was married to Gwen at the time. I didn't mean to point out mm. that he wasn't nearly as popular as her. But However. Guess, but I guess I did. <laughs> I think that was the net effect of that question, oh, obviously. Talk yes. about a chilling effect that. on the air. I was there at that moment, and it just went Ooh. cold in the studio in a hurry. Yeah. It was just one of those moments. And Roger's kind of raising his hands going like, what? <laughs> it was a great moment. There were so many. One of the things that I found it much is that on the few occasions when I met somebody who I was really enamored of, like Leonard Cohen or mm-hmm. George Harrison, it was a kind of a different space to be in. I was battling being a fan as much as being a responsible broadcaster and yeah. interviewer. Did you have moments like that? Yeah, pretty well every time I met anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really. <laughs> no, I did, because uh, I didn't want to make a fool of myself. I didn't want to ask stupid questions. Um I know a lot of times they they like to talk about things other than what they do for a living. You know, they just want to have a conversation with you. And yeah, I I struggled with that a lot. With anybody in particular? No, uh, nobody in particular. Just pretty well everybody. Well, except when you interviewed me, right? (laughs) Well, there was a time when I was pretty enamored with you too, Christopher. (laughs) Great stuff. Well, you know, over the years, we've talked, Roger, so many times about the number of people that we've interviewed over the years, and it was always an interesting, you know, dynamic. Like, some of them just wanted to come in and out, and some of them we ended up having just a great time with, Mm -hmm. right? Like, Keith Urban always comes to mind as one of my favorite guests, and we did something, we bounced off some words from his native New Zealand and Australia off him. We did the and, Urban Dictionary. Yeah, the Keith Urban Dictionary yeah. is what we did. And he was just great, which is <laughs> which is a fun... And, you know, you need to sometimes find a way to have fun with them mm-hmm. for it to be of any interest to mm-hmm. anyone other than them just saying when their album is out, when they're coming on tour. Speaking right? of people who were very giving of their time, Harry Connick Jr., who oh, we met yeah. on a couple of occasions. Yeah. After the interview, as Tom says, most of them just get up with the record rep and they walk out of the room, and that, that's fine because we, we've, we've completed what they came for. But he just kind of leaned back in his chair and hung in for another 10 minutes, and mm-hmm. we talked to him off the air, talked to him about all kinds of things, New Orleans and Fats Domino. and He was a terrific guy. Every time I hear him or see him, I think to myself how much I enjoyed meeting him. You know, another person that comes to mind is Lionel Richie. So we did a few broadcasts with him. Uh, Marilyn Dennis and myself um, uh, did an interview with him on a Sunday night. We did a coast-to-coast broadcast, and he was fantastic, and he told some great stories. But he also joined Marilyn and you on the morning show. He not only told great stories, but he was behind a keyboard at the time, I think. And he would just break into any song as he's telling the story. Yeah. yeah, and did he hang around? Do you remember if he hung around and kind of hobnobbed with everybody? Because he was very relaxed. I think he did after the show. He was in for a good part of the show. He just mm-hmm. didn't come in for 10 minutes. He was yeah. there for 
an hour or more. Yes. Yeah. The same thing happened with Burton Cummings. Burton Cummings. That was hilarious. Yep. We didn't know. So Burton Cummings sits down at a keyboard and just starts playing a song. Now, we have no idea how long Burton is staying for. And I believe he ended up staying for an hour and a half, performing a whole bunch of songs of his and the Guess Who's. And at one point, I think we changed American Woman into a Maryland Woman, which was weird, but <laughs> funny. And he was he was so great. And it is ironic that the two best Canadian music storytellers were in the same band because Randy Bachman can weave a great tale, mm. whether all of it is true or not is another <laughs> question. And Burton Cummings is the same way. They all tell great stories, and and they're so entertaining uh, to be around. Whenever anybody would come into the studio and play live, it was special, and I mean anybody because I, mm. I can't imagine. At, you know, it was always in the morning, and I can't imagine getting out of bed and performing that early that well. Dennis DeYoung comes to mind. Hilarious. He was great. He came inside at a keyboard. He sounded just like he did on all those songs. Yes. Come Sail That's Away, right. Babe, all wow. those yeah. songs. Yeah. yeah, and you know what was really funny? Another great moment was with the same song, Come Sail Away, and that's when Gowan joined us. Yes. I think it was 1999, just as he was starting with Sticks, and he came into our little studio and blasted out Come Sail Away and sounded just as good yeah. as Dennis DeYoung ever had on that song. So that's funny that it was it was the same thing. By but the we, way, I, I saw Dennis DeYoung in concert this past summer at the C&E, the exhibition, and he was tremendous. Mm-hmm. His voice is still in great shape. Mm-hmm. His wife's in the band. They do all of the songs they did with Sticks and, and others, and he pokes fun at the fact that he's not with Sticks anymore. And, mm-hmm. uh, so, you know, a lot of these people are, are still in, in tip-top shape after all these years. You know, we had so many great live performances on this show. I remember uh, Colby Calais coming in and performing yes. Bubbly. Uh-huh. I remember Dido coming in and performing, I think it was White Flag, and she was excellent. Uh, Jason mm. Mraz joined us and did two songs. One year he came in and did I'm Yours, and another year he came in and did uh, I Won't Give Up. And, you know, it was just great to have these people in. Um, there's one... There's a couple of times where I know that the artists themselves were really unhappy with their performances. We had Johnny Resnick in from the Goo Goo Dolls. They did a song, and I thought it was excellent. And he kind of like went out back, had a smoke, and he was just beside himself because he didn't think it was up to snuff. And also... There was a Canadian Idol artist by the name of Rex Gowdy, and I think he may have won Canadian <laughs> Idol, okay? So Rex comes in. I know Rex. He recorded a song of mine. <laughs> right. Rex came in, and he performed, and then as he's leaving, because you know what? It wasn't Rex's best day. As he's leaving, he goes, Canada's number one radio station, and I did that. Like, he was beside himself. He was so upset that he had not performed yeah. well. Serena Ryder was always good. She performed for us many times. Uh, I remember Jewel at one of our skating parties yes. one winter. She performed live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm in awe of anybody who can perform uh, that early. We had so many Canadian artists join us on on those events and many others. Um, I remember uh, Amanda Marshall coming in, and she she created a brand new Christmas song called Chill Out for Christmas that she performed, I believe, only once. And we still get requests, Mm -hmm. like 15 years after the fact for that song. It was so good. Uh, There was also a live performance, and I think my favorite performance on the morning show of all time was when Sarah McLaughlin, did Angel on a keyboard just by Mm. herself and I think it was in front of a live audience down at the Bravo rehearsal hall and it was exceptional it was so beautiful and moving it was one of my favorite moments and then we had crazy times like when Robbie Williams the singer from England came in remember that remember what he did he was so good. He was so good at, at singing. He was walking around the studio. He was actually reading the newspaper, flipping through the newspaper as he was singing. <laughs> you know, like he was so, so, <laughs> I don't know how he was able to do that. 
that was incredible. A lot of great moments, a lot of great reminiscences with Roger Ashby here on Famous Lost Words. Thanks for joining us, Roger. My pleasure. Okay, that does it for this episode. Great to talk to Roger again. Famous Lost Words is produced by Adam Karsh, executive producer Rob Farina. I'm Tom Jokic. That's Christopher Ward. Don't forget, you can get caught up with past episodes of Famous Lost Words on the iHeartRadio app. You can follow us on Facebook at Famous Lost Words and on Twitter at Famous Lost Pods. <laughs>